0: Welcome back to the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today, I'm so happy to interview one of my very closest friends in the entire world, Takeshi Yamazaki. Takeshi leads the church in Tokyo, Japan, and was on the original mission team back in the late 80s. We went to school together at UC Berkeley, and I knew Takeshi when he was a freshman in college, and now he leads a church in uh, one of the most developed countries in the world and is doing amazing, amazing work. Japan is considered by most church growth experts to be the Mount Everest of mission fields, one of the most difficult mission fields in the entire world, where less than one-half of 1% of the population is Christian of any type, and yet Takeshi has built a church there with uh, over 300 people, 300 disciples, and has multiplied churches all over Japan and with plans to multiply even more so. So I'm um, just so happy. Takeshi, great to talk to you. I'm just so happy to talk to you today. Thanks, Rob. Takeshi, can you share share how you became a Christian at UC Berkeley?
1: Yeah, I was baptized uh, December 1986. It was the first uh, semester of my freshman year. And basically, I was met, I think we call that uh, cold contact evangelism, <laughs> uh, a man by the name of uh, Tech Ming Lee. Uh, basically, just he just went for it. He just came right after me and said, hey, how's it going? Wanting to know if, if you're interested in the Bible, right on the spot, uh, open up the Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 29 and says, God has a plan for your life and just preach the word right there. So he's a great brother. He's now uh, with his wife leading a church in Malaysia. And uh, I was basically sitting on a fountain just having a Coke because uh, one of my uh, classes got canceled. <laughs> and uh, it, it's called Sproul Fountain. And it's an area where a lot of disciples evangelized. And it was an area that I uh, I wasn't very familiar with because I was an engineering student at that time. So most of my classes were on the north side of the campus. Mm-hmm. Sprout Fountain is on the south side, and I just I just sat there, you know, not knowing that I just I walked into basically um, <laughs> basically a fishing pond for disciples. <laughs> and uh, but you know, God, uh, you know, God knew what I needed, and uh, obviously I was eighteen. Uh, I was in a very good university, uh, but I was very lost. I was very empty. I was very lonely. Uh, I didn't know what to do with my life, and. I think God picked the right time to humble me and picked the right person to put in my life, to give me a chance to know him. So.
0: yeah, Now that's amazing. Now, did you, you didn't come from a Christian background?
1: No, I did. My parents were very, you know, typical Japanese, um, just really not religious at all. I did have some experience. My uh, junior high and high school were Christian. So I, you know, I went to church and I I was familiar with it, uh, but I really didn't, really didn't understand about God. I, and I think during my high school years, I did wrestle a few times with the thought of, does God exist? How do I know? So there was something, there was a seed planted in my heart that one day I would like to understand the Bible. Uh, but again, um, I, I, I never really believed that I'd become a Christian.
0: Now You have an interesting background. You You grew up kind of all over the place. And can you tell me just a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the questions growing up that I didn't like was, where are you from? Because that was a very long answer for me. <laughs> so basically, my, short, my story is born in New York in 1968, moved back to Japan, ages three to four, uh, moved to Toronto, Canada, lived there for six years. And then uh, middle of fourth grade, moved to Honolulu, Hawaii. I was there for eight years, went to university in uh, UC Berkeley in the Bay Area and then went to Japan. So that's basically my life. And so especially the younger part of my life, I was moving around quite a bit. My father worked for a big uh, Japanese corporation uh, called Seibu. They owned uh, hotels, um, retail shops, railway lines. And so basically my dad was kind of moved from country to country. Um, my dad was just your typical Japanese person, uh, but he, he really, um, you know, he wanted to live abroad. He, he wanted to live in the U.S., and so he took every, you know, advantage of every opportunity that the company gave him uh, to work not in Japan, but abroad.
0: Hmm. Now, an interesting story about your dad. Your dad was a kamikaze pilot during World War II. Can can you just just share a little bit about it? It's one of the most amazing stories to me.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a story that I heard once. Even my brothers didn't hear it. And my dad, like many other... Uh, Japanese who went to the war they, they didn't like to talk about what happened obviously because of you know all the traumatic elements but I think it was I think I was 14 at that time I was being an obnoxious teenager I got into a big fight with my dad and he just he just got mad and he said he he basically called me an obnoxious punk and he said basically he shut me up basically he said when I was your age I went to the army and he explained the story and i I was just in shock. And basically, the story was he was 16 uh, in 1945 when the, world, when the war ended. And the Japanese were just, you know, they were basically losing the war. So all the young people were signing up to recruit as recruits. And um, so he went through the whole ritual. He trained, uh, he became a pilot. And basically, you, you jump in an airplane. And so your, your whole plane, your whole life becomes a weapon. So he went out on a mission and but when he went out on the mission the you know the story that he told me was the US battleships or whatever they were looking for weren't there and typically at that point you're supposed to basically crash your plane into the sea because technically you've already died after you've done the ritual but he said that he couldn't get the voice of my grandma who you know kept crying please don't go please don't go and he basically came back and probably endured some shame and some know some torture but the war ended right after that so um luckily miraculously he didn't die and i was born so i'm glad it worked out the way it did
0: that's an amazing story and it's really interesting because we spent 10 years together in japan during the 90s and early 2000s and my dad also flew on the other side in World War II. And we both have older, older parents, World War II generation parents. So just an interesting uh, story about how God bonds different people from different backgrounds. So amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Now, when you became a Christian, there was a a decision point that you made and and you were really wrestling with it. Can you tell the story about like the turning point for you when you decide, okay, I got to become a Christian right now?
1: Yeah, I think there were a couple of turning points. Um, I think one is, um, I think after I'd done most of my Bible studies, I think in my heart, uh, I decided I wanted to become a disciple, but I think there was a lot of fear. I think there was a lot of selfishness. I didn't want to let go of a lot of my sinfulness. And so I think one 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 big turning point was uh, actually my best friend from high school, and he called me one day, and he, he was basically not doing very well. He was not doing well academically. He got dumped by his girlfriend. And he basically swallowed a whole bottle of aspirin and tried to commit suicide. And uh, so this friend of mine that I was very close to, uh, we were almost like brothers. And I basically proceeded to lecture him. I said, you you are messed up. You are in sin. Only God can help you. (laughs) And I spent the next 30 minutes basically lecturing him on his need to so come up to the bay area, spend 2 weeks with me, <laughs> study the bible with the people that I'm studying with and get baptized. He profusely refused. He says, "I don't like religion, I don't believe in God." And I just kept challenging. I said, "You are so arrogant." So everything that was taught to me, I taught I taught him. And after 30 minutes I got off the phone and I realized something that even though I felt so unsure of my own faith, When it came to what it takes to help my best friend, who's really in a dire position, I had no doubt at all. I said, only God, only the Bible can rescue him. I think that helped me to see that I had very strong convictions. I think the last nudge was, this is probably two days before I got baptized. It was right before the finals started. And I was at the library studying late. Long and short, I I almost got run over by a car. Hmm. You know, we had, you know, Friday nights, a lot of the, you know, the teenagers from that area would bring their hot rods and they would speed and I almost got hit by the car and I just, I stood at the curb and I thought, well, if I got hit by a car and died, this is pretty lame. I thought, and I just, (laughs) I just stood there picturing myself talking to God, God shaking his head kind of sideways and going, no, no, you know what I told you, Uh, you're, you're a fool, buddy. Okay. You knew what you were supposed to do. I gave you enough time. And I just, I just sat down the curb, imagining myself pleading with God, God, just give me one more day. Just, I'll do it. I'll do it. I get it now. And I think when I came to my senses, I got back to my dorm room. I called up tech right away. I said, you got to meet me now. Like, like now, tomorrow, you have to baptize me. <laughs> I, I couldn't end up in hell. <laughs> And so he agreed to meet me nine PM next the next night. I was determined. I said, I'm not gonna let this guy go home until he agrees to baptize me. So late in, in at that evening, I think it was even past midnight, probably Saturday night, I was baptized. So wow. God God was very kind enough to give me a second chance and give me a very strong nudge forward.
0: That's an awesome story. That's an awesome story. Now you you didn't even wait to graduate before you went back to Japan on the mission team. How how did that happen? Like can you what what made you want to go back on the mission team to Japan?
1: Well I think the first seed was um I think in 1987 we uh, I was uh at a big conference, I think it was in Boston, and just seeing God work around the around the countries, around the nations. Um, I think in our in our fellowship at that time. <clears throat> there was a lot of zeal to really go out into the world and start mission teams. And I, I I think at that time, I really, I really felt called by God Mm -hmm. and I really felt the urge that, you know, there's basically a huge country of so many lost souls and yet very few Japanese Christians, especially men in our fellowship at that time. So I think, I think I felt nudged by God, but obviously the fact that I had a few more years of college to go um initially, I said, well, let me wait until I graduate. And I think, honestly, at that time, I wasn't exactly your exemplary disciple. I wasn't, you know, mega effective in helping people become Christians. Uh, but I think I did make a decision that I was going to continue to pray about it. And so I think probably from that point on, I think I probably prayed every day consistently for about six months. Mm. And one of the doors that God had opened for me was to apply for an exchange program, and back in the late '80s, uh, a lot of students were, um, you know, you know, Japan became a popular destination for exchange students. So when I turned in my application, they said, "Oh, thank you for your application. Uh, you are number 25." And I said, "Okay, how many people are you accepting?" And they said, six. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is this is pretty challenging here. And so I kept praying, and I and I firmly believe that. Um, you know, my grades were not, you know, I wasn't a straight A student necessarily, but I believed if God wanted me to go, he'd find a way to let me go. And so every day I would, I would go up on the Hill, uh, in Berkeley. You could, you could kind of see the, you know, the San Francisco Bay. And I would just imagine myself one day being on the other side of the Pacific ocean, preaching the word one day, hundreds and thousands of Japanese disciples and, uh, just having that prayer every day just kind of kept me going. And, you know, the day that I went into the office to find out the result, I was, I was very, I was very much at peace. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't that I, I was confident in my academic abilities or my credentials. I just somehow believed that if God wanted me to go, God would get me there. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the office and they said, congratulations, you've been accepted. And I guess that was, that was it. I said, okay, this is, this was a slam dunk. God wants me to go. I'm scared. I don't know what I can do. I don't feel very confident in terms of my effectiveness as a disciple, but I felt very convinced that God wanted me to go.
0: Wow. Well, there's a couple of things that I think about when you say that. One, I mean, did you ever imagine yourself doing ministry work or missionary work when you became a Christian? I mean, in your early days before that happened?
1: You know, absolutely not. I think uh, after I got baptized, I I definitely had a lot of ups and downs uh, as a disciple. Uh, I think that there were there was a period in time where a lot of people were actually praying that I would I would not leave the church. I I, I was basically <laughs> a weak Christian. I was amazed that so many people knew my name, and they knew my name because I think they were just praying that I would <laughs> I would not be carried away by Satan. So definitely did not um, begin my. You know, my first six months, especially, uh, didn't start out great as a disciple. Uh, but I, I think when when I when I did become a disciple, I did make a firm decision that I wasn't going to give up on my faith. Mm-hmm. And so, but again, I don't think I was necessarily. I wasn't really like a leader, or I wasn't an up and coming star at that time. So right. no, I didn't. I didn't. It just. I guess that inspiration from God to go to Japan, really kind of came out of nowhere for me. Yeah. Well, it makes me think about
0: people that that maybe they're younger Christians and they're going, I, I don't know if I'm really cut out for ministry or missionary work. Any words or guidance that you'd give to those people that are thinking, you know, that's just not me or I can't do it?
1: Yeah, I would just encourage them, number one, to just just start praying mm-hmm. and, and not so focus so much on, what they think they can do now or what they are at that point. But really through prayer, ask God to give them a vision of what, what he can do in their lives in the future, you know, how he can transform people. Yeah. And I think that, I think even for me, my life um, again, like I said, I, I don't think I was exactly the most inspirational disciple when I left on the mission team, but I think people were able to see God transform me over the years and i think a lot of people probably honestly felt like well if he can go i can go right and and i think god can use anybody god can use obviously the the strong but god can also use the weak and the mediocre as well
0: that's amazing such an inspiring story now you i mean you were extremely important and vital there at the beginning because you were one of the few people on the team that that spoke japanese so you became immediately both song leader and translators, it's, isn't not that right? I wasn't there at the very beginning, so
1: yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I grew up I grew up in a Japanese family, and until seventh grade, I went to an intensive Japanese school. So my my Japanese was okay. It was probably about primary five level. Uh, it was adequate, but yeah, it you know most of the brothers uh, that went on the mission team uh, didn't speak any Japanese at all. So I was one of the few that was able to. Um, I was able to few translate about the song leading you know i i'm not gifted with you know music is not my thing and that's one of the things i remember saying to god god i will never be a song leader and i learned something that there's just you just don't say certain things to god and okay. so needless, I, I, I practice a lot i don't think i ever became a good song leader but i tried
0: yeah yeah that's great now at that point, that that was was that fall of '88 when you went back.
1: That's right, fall okay. of
0: '88. So you never really went back again back to the states long term. How did you finish your schooling? I mean, you had a year of exchange. How did you manage that?
1: Yeah, basically, my program was a one year exchange program. I completed that uh, in the summer of '89, and then um, at that point, I requested to extend extend another year at ICU, and so I was. I was able to um, accumulate enough credits, uh, but then in order to um, basically complete my degree at UC Berkeley, I would have to go back. And so that's kind of a crazy story. Um, I I needed about a year's worth of credit to go back. And so the first semester I did something that I, I guess I kind of regret it was probably not good judgment on my part. I basically was already kind of working full-time in the ministry in Tokyo and I flew kind of back and forth and I had I had brothers who would you know attend the lecture, send me the notes, and that was that was bad. That was just that was just not a good thing, and I almost had a nervous breakdown. Uh, my final semester, uh, I needed to go back because there was a um, there's a seminar course that was part of my requirement for graduation. So I, I did go back to UC Berkeley for six months uh, to finish my degree, and that was probably kind of a good good opportunity for me to kind of reboot you know, get my feet planted again. So
0: that's amazing. That's, that's an inspiring story for people that are thinking, you know, oh, I can't do it because of schooling. There's always, absolutely always a way. Now your parents, how did they take that? They must've thought this was odd.
1: Yeah, they were, they were not happy. Initially, my dad said, if you want to be a missionary, why do you want to go to Japan for? (laughs) Nobody in Japan wants to become a Christian. He said, if you want to go to, if you want to be a missionary, go to Africa. (laughs) I said, okay, dad. Um, But I think, on a more serious note, I think, I think for my parents, obviously they left Japan and they basically ended up, uh, you know, living the rest of their lives in the US. You know, they got a green card and everything. So they basically had their American dream. And so for their son, to kind of go the other way was probably a little bit confusing for them mm. and i think initially they were not happy uh, i think they were especially not happy about the fact that i was doing a lot of work in the ministry when i hadn't graduated yet mm-hmm. and it caused a lot of tension i think there's a period of about a year and a half where basically my parents disowned me and they said well if you're not going to you know a lot of japanese parents do that if if you don't obey them they'll just basically say get out. You're not my son anymore. And that's what happened to me. And that was, that was, you know, looking back, that was a difficult time, but I also felt like I needed to not back down on my conviction. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed to do what's right, you know, in the eyes of God, no matter how difficult it was. Um, so I'm just, I'm just glad that God gave me the strength to, uh, overcome that. And, and, you know, I got things patched up with my parents after that. So right. I think at the end, all, all was good.
0: All's well. That's right. Not, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, Japan's considered to be the, the Mount Everest of mission fields. I mean, it is like the most challenging mission field, at least, you know, <laughs> and speaking from personal experience, I absolutely agree. What amazes me Takeshi, is you've been there for, for 30 plus years. How have you personally managed to keep growing after 30 years on the mission field? Um, I mean, I just remember times just going, this place is a spiritual wasteland. There's no, there's no sense of Christ there. There's no, you don't see a lot of church, don't see church signs. You don't see, you just don't see any trace of, of Jesus there in Japan. And it's really a very empty place from a spiritual perspective coming from the West. How have you managed? How have you been able to stay so strong for so long?
1: Yeah, thank you. I, you know, I'm not a mountain climber, so I'm not exactly sure. You know, <laughs> Mount Everest sounds like a pretty intense uh, analogy. Um, and you know, for me, I've I've not experienced uh, going to, you know, being a missionary in other countries. So I'm, I'm sure uh, mission work wherever you go is challenging. And I don't think it's just Japan. Uh, I think in terms of, I, I did, I do feel like you hit on a good point where you know Japan's a it's a beautiful country. It's well developed. It's very safe. There's so many great things about it, but I think from a spiritual point of view, it is very desolate mm-hmm. and, uh, there are hardly any churches you can, you can go through parts of Japan where you won't see any churches at all. Right. Um, they say less than 1% of Japan is Christian of any kind, and there's just so little, you know, morality and Christianity. So that's, I think that's basically the hard part and, um. I think in terms of, you know, trying to grow, um, I think one of the things that kind of looking back is, I think I've had experiences in my life where I felt like, you know, God really humbled me. And, you know, in the Bible, you know, God says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And I think, you know, if if God wants to humble me, I think that's fine. But I think I found that maybe instead of asking God to humble me, maybe I should try to Work on myself getting humble. I think mm. this, is, this just seems like a better way to go. Mm. And I think there were times in my life, looking back, where I felt, I think, honestly, I just got very arrogant. I got very prideful. I very, got very complacent and felt like I'd arrived someplace. And those were the times when God really, really humbled me. And those were very, very, in many ways, bitter times, difficult times. And so I think I've tried, especially in the last 15 years, to make sure that I stay humble uh, in good times or bad times. And uh, so I do a lot of reading. Uh I try to read through the Bible once a year. I try to read through maybe 60 to 70 books a year. I'm not I'm not a great reader, but I think I try. I just always carry around the book. And then I think the other thing that really helps me is just just seeking help from the right people. You know, there there's there's always great people if you find them. Mm-hmm. There, there are sources of inspiration. There are people that can you know, put you in the right direction, and I think that that's probably helped me. Just being blessed with great people, great mentors, uh, not just locally but around the world, and I try to seek as much positive help as possible.
0: It's 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 awesome. You always have struck me as a very very humble person, and and so strong and persevering. Now you've you've got both a U.S. and a Japanese passport. You're both. Uh, you know, really kind of straddle, straddle the countries in a way. How do you balance the cha- challenge of being both Japanese and American? What, 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 I'm sure that's, you face some really kind of unique situations.
1: Yeah, I think, I, I don't know if the word balance is really appropriate for me. I think even growing up, even now, I I, I do have struggles with, with my identity. And I, I love visiting the States. I just, I get very excited. Uh, but then I think, the the reality is, wow, I'm just, I'm not very American. And then, you know, in my, in my daily life here, even including my family, I look totally Japanese. I speak Japanese well enough so that most people just think I'm a regular Japanese. And yet I just, I just kind of feel like a, like an alien a lot of the time. (laughs) And I think that's something that I've had to work with. And I, and I think really, I think I've learned to kind of accept who I am, that I'm not I'm not totally Japanese and I'm not totally American. I'm kind of a unique person, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe, maybe the proper is you know, the world is not my home mm-hmm. and whether I feel at home at a certain place is really not that important. Um, I think having, you know, both passports and identities, you know, has a lot of advantages. And so I've tried to try to look at it in a positive way that uh, even though uh, I am Japanese, instead of thinking, I'm a Japanese, but I'm deficient because I grew up in the States. I think it's actually, I'm at an advantage because, you know, so many things that a regular Japanese person bro- grown up here doesn't have, I'm blessed with. Right. And maybe the other way it works for me. I, you know, even though I go to America, speak English regularly, but I, I've also got the benefit of another culture and a language. So mm-hmm. just try to be positive about it and not, you know, not worry so much about my identity crisis.
0: Right. Well, I know for myself, uh, just having you as a friend in Japan when we were there was just so incredibly valuable because there are times when we we're you know, really lonely, but it was so great to just be able to talk to you at staff in English and, and to laugh together and to share stories. And, and uh, so for that reason alone, I'm, I'm grateful for your background. Now,
1: yeah, thank you. Yeah, I remember those times. We we had a lot of fun together. I it, know it, it, it. it. You and your family brought uh, <laughs> uh, so much excitement and joy, and uh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, those are precious memories.
0: Now, talking about the early days, you know, going way back to late 80s and the early mission team, do you have any funny stories from that time? Any Anything that you'd like to share with people that, that happened that was kind of out of the ordinary?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if it's funny or not, but I mean— you know, basically i was 20 years old i was a college student japan still is and was at the time very expensive so all of us we we always struggle with money and so i think a lot of our funny stories had to do with money so one of my favorites is uh, basically every week we were encouraged to take sisters out on dates and uh, but we did we just didn't have a lot of money and we had this one brother just very just very gentlemanly very good looking brother and he just, you know, he he was really into making the sisters feel very special. And so there was a flower shop near the station. But one of the things we realized is, you know, buying a rose or or you know, um, you know, buying like a typical regular flower in Japan was very very expensive. And so, uh, what he uh, decided to do is, well, he'll he'll get a very nice looking flower that was the cheapest flower. So he had, he had a one liner. <laughs> Uh, right before the date, he's you know he'd say with this very deep voice, uh, "Sister, I have something very special for you. Please uh, close your eyes." So the sister would close their eyes, and then and then he'd have the flower. Okay, go ahead, open your eyes. So he would present the sister with this flower, which he thought was very beautiful. Yeah, it, he bought it because it was the cheapest flower. was the only one he can afford, and uh, and it happened a couple times, and it, it never was a – Oh wow! This is beautiful because, for Japanese, it wasn't the right kind of flower, and basically the flower was—it was a chrysanthemum, and and basically, it's a flower for dead people. <laughs> that, that's the flower you'd put on someone's you know cemetery or. <laughs> It, it, it's not it's not a red rose date flower.
0: It's for funerals.
1: But you know, the sisters were very nice and they just they just couldn't they just couldn't they just couldn't break the news and so he kept doing it. He did it probably three, four, five times and, and he was very proud of himself and then and then one day one of the sisters just mustered up the courage to tell somebody without hurting his feelings. And um so that yeah, that ritual stopped. And, <laughs> yeah, another one is uh, you know, back in those days, because we didn't have a lot of money um you know we were encouraged as college students to you know dress nicely so we actually wore suits every sunday so that we would look a little bit more mature and i only had one suit i only had the suit that i bought when i graduated high school in 1986 it was kind of a dorky suit but uh you know back in the late 80s uh back then japan was very wealthy and they didn't have secondhand stores and so if you had anything that was old it's still nice but not you know you don't use it anymore you basically left it out in the garbage. And so in one of my prayer walks, I just stumbled upon just a bunch of boxes and I opened up the box and I said, wow, these are nice looking suits. And it just, it just happened to fit me. <laughs> I came home with five boxes, five new suits, which would would have probably cost hundreds of dollars. And, uh, <laughs> And then kind of, a, you know, right right on the inside of the coat, I think it, was, it belonged to a very wealthy man. It had his name kind of sewn in there. And I think his name was Mr. Takahashi or something. And overnight, basically, I had five really nice wool suits. And so that kind of became a trend for us that when we go out on prayer walks, the question was, are we really praying to God or are we actually doing garbage hunting? <laughs> and literally we we go out with the prayer, say, God, I need curtains, <laughs> uh, I need a chair, and, and so many things. You know, I mean it's really true. You know, if you pray for it and seek it, God will provide. And so literally, you know, whatever we needed, God just put out on the garbage in our neighborhood. Oh so.
0: my gosh, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Now, um, Let's let's turn our attention here a little bit to the church in Japan. And and how many churches are there now in Japan?
1: Uh, we have now seven churches, and we're, we're quite spread out throughout Japan.
0: Okay. And, w- and which cities are they in right now?
1: Okay, yeah. So uh, Tokyo, uh, I'm going to go in the order of their uh, size. Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya, and then we have uh, Sendai, and then we have a church in Okinawa. Then we have two small churches in Fukuoka, and then Hokkaido. So we're basically way up north and way down south.
0: Wow! So you've got you've got outposts everywhere there in Japan, and like, tell, let's go back to the beginning. What was it like when you arrived in Japan? What was the state of the church? How big was the church? Where were you meeting?
1: Yeah, this was in the late '80s, and uh, basically we were meeting uh, in an old. Um, an old church building, uh, the, the the church that was started by George and Irene Garganis after the war, and uh, we were blessed to have a, a building, some classrooms. So at that time, there were probably about maybe twenty people gathering, and um, I think that there were there weren't very many brothers at that times, and I think George and Irene were there, and a few of us had kind of moved over from Japan to just try to just try to get the church restarted. There were there were a few residual older people that had basically stayed faithful from the, from the post four years. Uh, but I think, yeah, at that time we, we felt very small. We felt very weak. Uh, we weren't really exactly sure how, you know, what God was going to do at that time.
0: Hmm. Wow. Okay. And there were some dorms there. So you stayed in the dorms. Isn't that, isn't that right? You're were- some dormitories.
1: Yeah, that's right. There were probably about three or four dorm rooms. And so most of the brothers that had uh, gone there, uh, you know, went there for the mission team, we stayed in the dorms. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) We'd we'd get up every morning, I think it was 6am to have our uh, daily prayers and devotionals together. And uh, at that time, uh, we didn't, uh, you know, there was no shower facility in the building. And so this probably sounds a little bit culturally weird for the westerners but uh back in the day they would have these uh you'd actually pay money to go to like a japanese style bath and so that was that was kind of a fun thing that we did basically every night
0: that's so cool yeah to go to the go to the sento okay so what so the gerganises planted it in 51 is that right yeah that's and, right. Yeah. and where the church is it's it's pretty much right downtown you know japan like most of the films that are filmed of Japan film the Shibuya crossing, which is, can't be more than a mile away from where the church is at. Um, but they, they plan it there in the fifties and then they came back. So what, tell me a little bit about that. What was it like having the garganuses on that team? And I think they're in their seventies at the time.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, they, they provided so much inspiration, so much stability. I think for me personally, you know, I, you know, growing up, you know, in the States, I, I didn't have grandparents growing up. And so I think I've always wanted a grandpa and a grandma. So they were basically to me, um, you know, I was only 20 at that time. So just having a spiritual grandfather and grandmother was, was really, really inspiring. Uh, basically they just gave us faith. Uh, just the perspective was so different. And I remember just some of the talks I had in the early years and I would share some of my struggles Um, you know, kind of battling sin, battling discouragement, battling loneliness. And George would just, he just kind of pull out some stories, you know, about, you know, when he did mission work in Africa. He shared stories about one time he basically visited Korea during the Korean War, and the train that he was in got shot at. And basically just sitting there in the living room, 30 minutes, an hour of his story, he just— you just got a perspective that God was so much bigger. Wow. <laughs> I, think, I think all my problems just seem very, very small. And, and I think what they brought more than anything is they really, really believed that God was going to do something great. Hmm. And just over and over, they would say, we, we believe with all of our heart that God wants to evangelize Japan. He's going to do something amazing. Even though we're still small, we're still insignificant now, God can do anything. That was the, really just the consistent messages message that they kept giving us at that time.
0: I mean, it was so amazing. Um, Although I never got to, I I never got to meet George. I think he passed away before I I got over there, but um, just to, to come out of retirement and then to go to that difficult mission field, what, what an inspiration for older, older disciples. And just, I mean, he was totally instrumental and I know that there was some some challenge with the direction of the church, the control over the church. Can you talk a little bit about those early days and what was going on there in terms of, uh, you know, the control of the church?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a bit of a complicated situation. Basically, the church really blossomed after the war, I think, in the 1950s. Not just the Church of Christ, but churches in general in Japan blossomed. But then from the 1960s, 70s, I think the economy prospered. I think people got worldly. And I think by the time the 80s came, you know, most of the churches, and in fact the, the church that George started as well, basically had really kind of died down and dwindled to nothing. So I would say the long and short is, you know, most if you know, if you know, I think most of the older members were really discouraged. They hadn't seen people baptized in maybe decades. And so a lot of them were basically um basically put up the white flag and they were planning to close down the church and they were not very open to um, restarting the church or just implementing changes. And so I think there was some conflict because I think I think George and Irene had embraced a new philosophy, a new, a new way of trying to build the church. I think the people that came on the mission field had a renewed vision, but I think the older people were very hesitant to do things differently. And so mm-hmm. obviously there was of a kind of a control power struggle at that time
0: and what 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 was george's role in that i mean how how did he make a difference
1: well i think that you know uh some of the older people um you know even some of those that were hesitant to make changes uh they were very deeply grateful to him Mm -hmm. and i think that they sensed in george that he was very excited about the new direction and so i think he was you know, he, he, he basically tried his best. I think he, he gave people a lot of time and space um, to try to accept 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 change on their terms. And um I think that basically, um, you know, the, the older people, especially the leaders that were still there, um, they just had a lot of respect basically mm-hmm. for for this couple that came to Japan after the war. Mm-hmm. And um I think there was a lot of loyalty. Mm-hmm. Um there and I think George and Irene, even though they moved back to Japan, uh, from Japan, uh, they never lost a heart for the congregation. And so it was obvious that they really loved the people, and just for them to come back in their seventies, just yeah. I think it was just a very powerful statement. Right. So.
0: And he was still the president of the board, isn't that right? He was still the the person technically on paper as the executive. That's right.
1: That's right. And so. Um, You know, legally, he was, you know, because he was the president of the church, um, he was able to basically make decisions, um, you know, promoting a new direction for the church. And so that was, you know, that was kind of God's intervention. It was kind of God's way of making sure that, you know, that the church was able to. Um, operate in that old building, you know, after all those years.
0: Right. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about that building because the building that you meet in now is absolutely beautiful and was designed by one of Japan's most famous architects. Um, how did that happen? I mean, where did you get the money to pay for that building? How did that even come about?
1: Well, if you uh, visit our church building, you'll see that there's a, there's a new highway right in front of the church building. And so, um, Basically, the government uh, wanted to buy a piece of our land, and this is back in the early 90s when land prices were still – I mean, it's still high now, but even compared to now, land prices were very, very high. And so I think for a long time, uh, every staff meeting, we prayed for our building to or – I'm sorry, the, the the plot of land to be miraculously sold quickly because land prices were going down at a very fast pace at that time. Mm. So. Basically, some miracles happened. Um, we were able to sell the land way before our time. We really believe it was a hand of God, and so basically, a small plot of land that was sold to the government uh, that became part of the freeway. Um, basically, that financed our new church building. That's and so amazing. Just, just a series of miracles, and you know, the the, the old wooden church building was, um, you know, it was already fifty years, and we. We we'd all, we we'd always joke that you know it's better not to sneeze in the church building because <laughs> the church building might come down and uh, so the wooden floors were kind of cranky if you actually you know got up to use the restroom during service you <laughs> disrupt the whole service and so the building was you know it was it, it was it was it was dying so we, we definitely <laughs> needed needed the new church building and 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 God blessed it with uh, just it's a beautiful building and it's it's big it's spacious and uh so we're just uh very very um fortunate just just the hand of god yeah
0: it's amazing i mean really just i remember arriving before the old building was taken down and just it was just so cold in the winter and there would be open fires with with uh, propane or not propane but uh kerosene stoves heating it and you just stand over like a with your hands over there trying to stay warm during during the service. Amazing, amazing transformation. Now, for you, during that first year, you were going to school at I- ICU, International Christian University. That's a long way away from the church building, but you had a very fruitful ministry there. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, my university was, um, it, was it was quite far. I think uh, if you hop on the train and then you have to take a bicycle from the station, basically door to door it'd be maybe an hour, hour, ten minutes. And the trains are quite expensive. So a round trip um would cost um maybe about twelve dollars, you know. Um so that's you know, that's quite a load for, for college students. And and I think because the campus was far away from Tokyo, most of the people, you know, who went to school there, basically their life was there. They they would not travel um to Tokyo, especially except for the weekends if they wanted to go partying or something. So Um, I would say one of the keys was I think we were able to build a great Bible talk. Uh, We had Bible talk uh, every Thursday. Uh, We had a set room. And uh, there's kind of a uh, Thursday was a day where the lunch break was a little bit long. And uh, so we were able to have uh, just uh, great Bible talks. People came every week, Um, you know, 10 people, 20 people, visitors came out. And uh, so we did did a lot of praying, a lot of evangelism. Uh, I think one of the turning points for me, I think obviously for me, it was difficult because I was baptized in a very large campus ministry at UC Berkeley and moving to a situation where I was the only student, you know, that was, that was difficult. And I think a turning point for me was, I think initially I, I felt very heavy hearted, like, wow, I'm by myself. This is difficult. This is challenging. But I think, um, you know, I, I got some help. I got some, you know, some discipling. And and one of the things I, I started to do is I started to dream. I said, God, I, it's only me right now, mm. but one day I'm going to walk into this cafeteria, and I'm going to see this cafeteria filled with disciples sharing their faith.
0: That's awesome. You
1: know, one day we're gonna we're gonna convert that that prideful guy from that club because he thinks <laughs> he's such a hot shot. And so just kind of dreaming and praying, uh, and then just doing just a lot of work, a lot of evangelism. um, So we built a great Bible talk. And I think, you know, after the Bible studies would, uh, you know, would proceed to a certain extent, then we'd bring them to the church building. I'd bring them to the dorm, introduce them to the community. uh, And that's where a lot of life change happened. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are just uh, great times, great memories.
0: Right, right. So many people uh, that you converted there are still really strong members of the church. It's It's a great work that you did. Now from that time, uh, tell us a little bit about the kind of growth that you saw over that that first ten or fifteen years in the church.
1: Yeah, I think the first ten fifteen years was you know really kind of an exciting times. I think as we look back, obviously, probably made a you know a lot of mistakes and things were not necessarily all good, but but we were just you know we were very excited. We we I don't in many ways I think we didn't know what we were doing, but I think we believed that God can do anything, and so. We we prayed a lot. We had a lot of all night prayers, a lot of fasting chains. Uh, we shared our faith. We just just always studying the Bible with lots and lots of people. And uh, I think we'd have uh, uh, special summer campaigns. We'd go out and share our faith with lots of people. Really exciting services. And uh, yeah, it was just it was just exciting to see the church. You know, just 20, twenty thirty in the first year, just get to a hundred, get to two hundred, just kind of keep keep growing with just. Uh, just a real real exciting time so i think we just praise god for showing us all those miracles
0: well i'm sure there's people listening that are in ministries or churches that they feel kind of stuck they feel like man there's you know they may not say it but they feel like man is there anyone open around here is there anyone who's remotely interested in the gospel it seems like people just aren't open um What would you tell them if they're facing a difficult situation or a situation they feel really challenged about their mission field?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously I still feel challenged. I think we can feel that um, here even now. But they're always open people. And and I think I would just encourage them to obviously not give up. Um, I think one of the things that I think we've learned the last couple of years is uh, maybe people here uh, take a little bit longer. Uh, maybe the conversion process doesn't happen over a one month or a three month period. Uh, maybe sometimes, you know, it takes. Uh, it it could take a year or two. It doesn't mean it has to take that year. Right. I, I'm just saying. I think God works in different ways, and so not not to be limited to a certain way or a certain time frame, uh, but just. I, I think what we've just tried to do is just do do what we feel is our best. Uh, look for things that work. If something works, just keep doing it. If something doesn't seem to be working, pray about it, try something different. Right. And, and just, I think there's so many different ways that God can work um, to, you know, to bring people to Christ.
0: Right. Right. That's great advice. Now you, you are married to one of the the, the funniest, most vivacious women I know of on the planet, and that's Manami. How did you guys meet and and get get together?
1: Yeah, we first met at the church in Manhattan. Uh, my parents were living in New York. That's probably when I was going through the, you know, kind of the conflict with my parents. And I visited the okay. church in Manhattan. I said, Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm Takeshi. I'm visiting from Tokyo. And everyone's like, Oh, have you met Manami? And I said, Oh, <laughs> and I haven't met her. And I think about 10, 15, 20 people said, oh, you haven't met Manami? And I thought, hmm, that's interesting because typically Japanese women are, I guess, quiet. And I thought, hmm, this just Manami person doesn't seem to sound like a your typical Japanese person. And so <laughs> I think after a couple of times, I was introduced to Manami and she was just, um, she was, you know, in a good way, different. Very, um, she was like a New Yorker, Japanese, very out of herself, very excited, very zealous. Uh, we became uh, very, very good friends um and I think you know at that time it wasn't necessarily on both sides it wasn't love at first sight, I think we developed a very good friendship and uh but after that first initial uh, time meeting her, uh she moved back i think the following year and she got a job in Japan, and we were able to work together in the ministry a few years later so that's probably the the time uh we worked together was probably what kind of helped us to uh Get a romance going.
0: Right, right, exactly. That's that's right. Okay, so I wish she she were on the on the line here today. She's just hilarious, great person. Now, what kind of setbacks and difficulties did you experience building the church, Takashi? What what are some of the things that you face? Are like, go, whoa, that really knocked the wind out of me.
1: Yeah, I think you know, just I feel like there's been a lot of setbacks and. Uh, I'm sure there are setbacks in every church and every culture, but I think for us, basically the lack of Christian foundation here is very difficult. And I think what we found is a lot of people maybe were eager to get baptized, but then their, their spiritual foundation, you know, the, the, the roots weren't really there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just, you know, I think for obviously for Christians, it's discouraging when people get baptized, but then they give up on the faith. And so basically just, just kind of overcoming the, kind of indigenous struggle, the the, the worldliness, the materialism. Uh, I think a lot of people lose their faith. Either they they don't get baptized or they end up leaving the church because of family pressure, social pressure. That's a big thing for us here. And um, just kind of, you know, building a church of disciples with strong convictions that won't leave, you know, when, when the fire comes. I think it's been a big challenge. Um, I think, you know, cultivating a culture of spirituality I think especially in the initial years, I don't think we were very good with, uh, you know, conflict resolution. Mm. And because the culture here, uh, there's just a lot of shame involved and people are ashamed to deal with conflict. They're ashamed to talk about their weaknesses. And so I think that we've learned to just try to develop um, just a healthier um, culture where we're not we're not we're not ashamed to talk about our weaknesses. We're not. Ashamed to sort out differences. We're not ashamed to admit that we're not perfect. Right. We have issues. We have fights. We have differences. Um, so I think just, I think those are things that we, uh, are still working on right now, I believe.
0: Right. Right. Now let's, let's imagine you could just step into a time machine and you could go back in time. 31, 32 years to your first year in Japan. What, what three things would you counsel your, your younger self?
1: Wow. That's a, that's a very, that's a very deep question. (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, I think I'd first of all tell myself, learn the language better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think seriously, um, I think one, I would tell myself God will make it grow. And even when things go well, things don't go well, even if you make mistakes, God will make it grow. Mm. And so don't get so overwhelmed when somebody decides to stop studying the Bible or they decide to leave the church, that Mm. God will make things grow. I think that's, that's one thing I would tell myself. I think the second thing that I would tell myself is to take better care of the people that God put into my life. Mm. And I think in the early days, I know for me, uh, I felt because we were so small at that time, I always just felt like we needed to increase and increase. And, and it's, you know, obviously it's great to see the church increase. It's always great to see uh, new disciples. But I think looking back, uh, I don't think I was very balanced, where I was just so focused on increase that I didn't really take the time to help people to grow and mature spiritually to, to develop those deep roots. And so I think looking back, I think if we would have taken better care of the people who got baptized in the early days, uh, given them the time and really just the, you know, the meat the, the spiritual meat that they needed to grow. Hmm. Uh, I think maybe many more of them would be faithful at, at this time. Um, I think these are all kind of similar things. I think the last thing I would say is just take the time to build the church properly Mm. and if if the church is built on a deep spiritual strong foundation it will survive any of the storms Mm. and don't you know don't get caught up in the you know on being result oriented um you know the a lot of short-term successes i mean it's not all bad but, but sometimes they can be very deceitful because you think you're being very successful because a lot of people are getting baptized. But if the foundation is not deep, uh, you know, it won't be able to weather the storm.
0: Right. Right. That's, that's profound right there. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you were, you were such a young Christian anyway, though, it'd, it'd be hard for you to have that perspective. It'd be amazing to have a, an older brother like yourself, go back and give you that kind of advice. Now, you let's just change the subject entirely to Kes. You are a major sports fan. I mean, this must be one of the big sacrifices in, in, uh, going to Japan. I mean, you are a huge baseball fan. Um, tell me about, I, I know that you have a special ambition that you, um, want to, want to see some of the baseball parks. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I love sports and I think I'm basically a baseball nerd. <clears throat> Uh, you know, I grew up, you know, trying to do different sports. And I think I, the only sport that I was semi-successful was baseball. I played baseball until high school. So I just, I just love baseball, and I'm just a baseball nerd. And so, yeah, one of the goals that I set is, uh, you know, before I take the bucket, uh, that I'll be able to visit uh, every baseball, you know, Major League Baseball stadium uh, in the United States. And it's <laughs> honestly, it's a meaningless goal. I don't, I don't even know why I said it, but, um, I think I've been able to accomplish about two thirds of it. That's awesome. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, I think really what it does for me is it just, um, I think every time I visit a new stadium and, uh, it, it just helps me to feel like I haven't missed out on life in the U.S. I mm-hmm. think that's probably the big part of it. Right. And honestly, at this point, if I don't accomplish it, it's not a big deal. It's just, I guess, it's just kind of a kind of a hobby thing. But I, I love baseball. I'm now, which baseball.
0: which stadiums have have you still to visit?
1: Uh, well, let's see. I've got a couple of stadiums in Florida, and uh, and then really the all the Midwestern, you know, like Cleveland, Cincinnati, Ohio. So those are kind of that whole area. Um, I I haven't figured out a way to get to those areas.
0: So, (laughs) so you'll have to encourage people to have conferences there in, uh, in the heartland of the, of the country.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was, that's why I'm a little bit bummed. I had, I had a plan to, uh, knock down a couple of the stadiums for Orlando this summer. So (laughs) that'll have to wait a couple of (laughs) years.
0: No, Takeshi, let's, let's, let's go back to the missionary work and, and the work there in Japan. You know, um, Japan is is such a mysterious nation. I remember just going to Japan for the first time and going, "Oh my gosh, I am not in Kansas anymore." We, this place is so foreign. I mean, when you talk about foreign country, it is foreign. Like you can't read anything. You can't. The language is completely impenetrable for for a Westerner. Um, I just felt stupid for so so many years there in Japan, not being able to communicate or read. Um, and it, it's tough for a Western or a person outside the country to go. How would I even go there? And yet, there's a lot of interest. You know, um, is there still room for missionary work in Japan? Is there still a space for that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we you know we're still very small. I mean, we're we're, we're still a very small congregation, and. You know, again, we, we say we have seven churches, but most of them are small. We have, we have tens of cities uh, in our country that have populations of millions and millions. So we're talking about a, still a very, very unevangelized area. And so I think you, you did hit, hit on a point where uh, in terms of the language and culture, I think there, there are many reasons where, you know, for a Westerner, um, it is challenging to, um, you know, to live in Japan. Uh, but I think at the same time, you know, like looking back even, you know, the early days of the church, I mean, God, God used not just George and Irene, but, you know, people like you and Pam and your family and so many other uh, Americans to really build the church here. And mm. one of the things about Japanese is they will tend to open up their hearts more to Westerners. Mm. And even though they're kind of uptight, they're kind of mistrusting, they don't want to talk about God or the Bible to another Japanese. They'll tend to be warm, and you know they'll just they'll kind of lighten up yeah. uh, to, to to a Westerner. And I think uh, just I think just the culture that uh, your family had, just being very fun, very positive, you know, at times I guess a little bit you know crazy, nonconformist. Uh, you know, those things are very very attractive to a Japanese. Mm. And, and I think you know if J- if Japanese can just come into contact with very warm, very fun, very loving westerners i think there's just a just a a better chance for them to initially come exposed to the church so i'm definitely praying that god will bring some great helpers over the years Mm. as well we're definitely open to that
0: that's great so if a person were interested in supporting the work and and maybe moving to japan or doing a one-year challenge what what would they do what would be their first step to do what how should they proceed
1: yeah I think obviously you know <clears throat> a lot of prayer a lot of preparation and I think on the flip side to kind of that warmth and the you know the the that the character I think I think you have to have very strong convictions and I think you have to be able to um be resilient and you have to accept the fact that a lot of people will you know when you invite them to church they'll kind of give you the cold eye a lot of people will reject you and so if if people are not Grounded strongly in their walk with God, they're not going to do well spiritually yeah. here. Yeah. So I think that would be the most important step. Uh, obviously, if 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 you can learn the language, uh, I think that would be great. Yeah. And um, and I think obviously um, if you can basically be you know financially self-supporting, be you know there 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 are many job opportunities here. You know you can work as English teachers, but you can also work in the companies. I think you know. You know Japan is not uh uh, it's very, uh you know it's not a cheap place to live, so you have to make sure you're financially stable as well mm-hmm. but i think I think more than anything if you have a strong faith, strong conviction, a heart for God, and just a really a a heart for the people that that yeah. really cares, I'm sure God can use that in a great way
0: yeah yeah well takeshi one of the things that inspires me the the most about you is um you you've devoted your life to serving God and to serving the people of Japan and your perseverance in the face of that. Um, there was a storm in 2003. Um, all the foreign missionaries went back for one reason or another. One of the reasons was just the lack of funding. Uh, funding was cut back dramatically and you were, were really left. You were like the man who stood in the gap and held that church together. Um, during its its darkest hour. And for that, I've I've always been inspired and respect you so greatly. What what advice would you give to someone like yourself, man or woman, who wants to live a life of mission, a life of adventure, totally sold out for God?
1: Yeah, I think one of the uh one of the Bible passages that really kind of came to life during those difficult times is uh Hebrews chapter six, verse 10. It talks about how God is not unjust <clears throat> and he will not forget the work. Mm. And I think when we went through the storm, I think one of the difficult things was just seeing so many of the people um, that had become our brothers and sisters leave. That w- that felt very empty. That felt very sad. And I think that reading that passage really gave me a paradigm shift. Mm. And I think it helped me to remember once again, I think the the focus that I had when I first went but I think over the years, perhaps because we were successful, because we were seeing so many people get baptized, um, I think that I had probably become more people-centered and less God-centered. And so I think during that time, I think I decided that everything that I do is for God. Mm. And my work of loving people, trying to be a shepherd, um, teaching the Bible, um, obviously I'm I'm serving people, but... But this is for God, and so everything in my life is a service to God. And I think when I when I came to grips with that, I think it helped me to overcome that feeling of emptiness, that feeling of um, you know just failure or you know bitterness. And obviously, when things don't turn out great, that's disappointing. But in uh, in God's eyes, whether someone becomes a Christian or not, that's not for me to decide. I can't control that. Mm-hmm. If someone decides to leave the faith, that's very disappointing and sad. But again, that's also something I can't control. Hmm. What I can control is no matter what the circumstances, I'm always giving my best to God and to his people. And ultimately, my service to the church is not about serving the church. It's about serving God. Hmm. So I think that's kind of helped me to kind of keep going. And, um, you know, good times, bad times. I just try to remember that God knows. And if I can just cling on to God and just continue to serve him, uh, I believe with all my heart that he He will reward everybody in heaven accordingly.
0: Yeah, right. Now, you, you told me a story one time about going back to UC Berkeley, going back to the dorms that you were a part of, the first Bible talk that you led, and kind of get, catching a second wind. Can you tell me again about that story?
1: Yeah, I think I've actually probably done that maybe three times, uh, maybe in the last 20 years. And I think the first time was probably back in 2006 when I was, I was really having a difficult time as the leader of the church. I just felt like the church wasn't changing. It wasn't improving. I felt like I wasn't the right person. And I, was, I think I was just kind of very desperate for any kind of faith and any kind of inspiration. And so uh, because of a trip that I had in the States, I just had an opportunity to basically drive up, park the car, and kind of walk around the dorm room and that was a life changer for me and i remember <clears throat> just walking around that same dorm and remembering back being a 19 20 year old christian and i would i would i would walk around <laughs> those dorms and pray a lot especially before bible talks because uh, when i first became a bible talk leader I, I was i was not a very good bible talk leader and i just i got so stressed about my bible talks and i remember just being very convicted that as a 19 20 year old even though I had so little experience, I wasn't very effective as a Christian, I I had enough faith in God and courage to lead a Bible talk, to step out on faith hmm. and to go out in Japan. Wow. And I think after all the miracles that God has shown me, all the training that He's provided, I realized that as time had passed, I'd gained experience, I'd gained knowledge. But I think that, you know, the 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 initial heart, the, the, the courage, the trust in God, I'd really lost that. Yeah. And so that was a very convicting time in 06. I basically hopped on the airplane and I said, I have no idea whether or not I can do a good job. But when I hopped on that airplane in 1988, I felt the same way. I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, I was really not confident in myself at all. But I knew one thing. I knew that God wanted me to go. And I knew that God could do anything. Mm. And so I think I came back in 06 after that time, you know, praying around the dorms that I think I was very determined that I wasn't, I was not going to give up no matter what happened. Mm. And whether or not I saw the results wasn't, wasn't important. Right. I just needed to get a heart of trusting God, basically giving my best.
0: Yeah. Just all about God, just serving him no matter what. And, you know, it's amazing Takeshi is with a church of 300 and, and, you know, probably an attendance of four or 500 on a Sunday, really your, your church is probably probably the largest church in Japan. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the mega church of Japan in comparison to all others, which is really amazing and a huge, huge accomplishment. Uh, something that's awesome. You know, I just want to, I want to say something about the the Japanese people because I was just so impressed by being there for 10 years, just the amazing quality of the Japanese. It's hard to describe to to people outside coming from the West. What is it you love about the Japanese people and you love about leading the church there?
1: Yeah, the people here are very, very faithful. They're very loyal. Uh, They're very responsible. I mean, it's amazing. Like, everybody is always on time. (laughs) And... (laughs) If you have a Skype call at seven, <laughs> or a Zoom call, they will be on there at six fifty. It's just that people are very punctual. They're very respectful, and, and they really really try their best. Mm. And you uh, know, I think a few years ago when we experienced the tsunami and the you know the radiation and the disaster, I think that was a moment where I think you know the people of our country really shined. You know, mm. that it was I was very proud of the people here. Were you know in very in, in a very bad situation, there was no looting, you know, there was no taking advantage of others. You know, people stood in line to get their, you know, one cup of water. And so that's, I love about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, people are very clean. They're very responsible. They're very respectful. Yeah. And, and and I think in so many ways, even though um, the, the, the Christian foundation is not there, I think within the char- within the character of the people, you are know, a lot of Christ-like qualities. Oh so my I, I love that. I love the people here. Yeah,
0: so impressive. I mean, I never felt safer than when I lived in Japan. So many times my wife would walk back late at night from the train station, never worried about her, never locked our doors. Uh, place is absolutely spotless right you know, in the city. Just hardworking, people working so many hours and yet so cheerful. I, it's very, very impressive. So c- certainly miss it and miss you. Takeshi, thanks so much for your time. It's, it's, I just love spending the time. I could spend hours and hours talking more, but really appreciate you, your work there. I'm going to be praying, continuing to pray for you, your wife. Thank you. Uh, your staff and the church and the churches throughout Japan. And I want to thank you today for joining me on the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a life of no regrets, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. If you enjoyed the program, I'd like to ask you a favor. Please subscribe and let people know about it. We want to spread the word and encourage disciples to grow. Have a great day and make this life count.